0: everyone. It is Zoe here and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast. This is the show that's going to give you all the ideas, tools, and validation you need as we navigate our lives together as mothers. In August, to give me and the team a bit of a break from our rather hectic recording schedule, we re-release some of our most popular, most loved episodes from the first six months of the year. And I am so excited for you to hear this one. Here it is. Just a quick ask from me before we dive into this week's episode. You might not know this, but we are a really small team behind the scenes at MotherKind, but we have a massive ambition to support millions of mothers to feel more confident, happy and empowered. And even though we've got this incredible back catalogue of over 300 episodes, I really do feel like we are just getting started. And often you lovely listeners will ask me how you can support the podcast and help us reach more mums. So I've thought of a really easy way that you can do that. Because from today, you can subscribe to the podcast if you listen on Apple Podcasts, which over 70% of you do. So for just $3.99 a month, you can support our Motherkind mission and you get all the podcasts ad-free going forward. It's really easy. All you need to do is just go to your Apple Podcasts app, find Motherkind, find the section at the top where it says support the podcast and enjoy ad-free episodes. Click on that. You'll then have a seven-day ad-free trial where you can hear what it feels like to listen to the podcast with no ads whatsoever, and then you move on to pay $3.99 a month. And every single penny of that money will go towards empowering more mothers with this incredible guests, ideas, and tools that we share week after week on the show. Thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. Whether you subscribe or not, I am incredibly grateful that you are here and thank you for being part of the MotherKind mission. Okay, on to this week's episode. My guest this week is Dr. Rick Hansen. He is one of the world's leading psychologists and he says it's imperative we recognize the pressures we're under as mothers so we can both support ourselves and ask for the support we need from others. Dr. Rick, back in 2002, wrote the seminal book on caring for mothers called Mother Nurture, because he saw his own wife go from a happy, healthy woman to becoming clinically depleted after children. And with his decades of experience as a psychologist, he felt called to support mothers. This episode is incredible, incredible. Every word Rick says is like gold. You are going to finish this episode feeling so much more self-compassion. You're going to feel more ease. Hopefully, you're going to feel kinder to yourself. Rick also shares some wonderfully practical ideas of how we can reduce the stress of motherhood. Rick shares an analogy about the Olympics that made me cry. I cannot wait for you to hear it. I think you're going to love it too. And make sure you listen right to the end because we talk about the impact of the pandemic and what Rick has to say is nothing short of life-changing as you might know, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, I have a list on my desk. I'm looking at it right now of dream guests that I want on the podcast. And I get today to tick off Dr. Rick Hansen because he's been on that list for a while. I'm still waiting for Oprah and Brené Brown. I'm calling them in people. They are coming. But this episode with Dr. Rick is incredible. Please share it. Please listen to it once. Please listen to it twice. I think if all mothers could listen to this episode, it would be nothing short of world-changing. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Rick, I was just saying to you, on honour, this is, I have this sort of dream list of guests that I would love. And you were obviously on that list. And when Angie, who works with me, said that you'd agreed to come on, I have to say, I was absolutely thrilled because your work is just incredible and has helped me personally so much. So thank you for coming on the show.
1: Oh, well, Zoe, I'm very touched. And as we said just before we got started, I'll say it a little more formally. What originally motivated me in my interest around motherhood was a deep commitment to children. Children are vulnerable, they're precious, they're innocent. We inflict consciousness upon unsuspecting flesh. So we have a profound duty to the children we bring into the world. And then it becomes really clear that the very best thing we can do for all our children and the future of humanity is to take good care of their mothers. Hello, What an idea. And so I feel really honored and happy to be able to be on this show. And my own journey started a little bit when Jan and I became parents ourselves about 34 years ago when our first child was born, followed by his younger sister nearly three years later. And I just saw my wife, who was a very robust psychologically and physically robust person coming into motherhood, get progressively worn down and eventually clinically depleted by the process of everything she was going through in a fairly well-supported environment with hopefully a pretty decent partner, in my case, who wasn't perfect, but it was at least trying. And still the relentless stresses and fatigue and demands and lack of respite and lack of other resources including community and social resources, which have been so disrupted by the pandemic and were already a very tattered web, all of that just naturally adds up over time. Sure, motherhood clearly is for most women the most important and meaningful and rewarding and precious experience of their life, and also the most demanding, the most stressful, the most draining, the most disruptive, and the most consequential. So all of that has motivated me in my work in this area and has led me to be grateful to you and for the people who are listening here and to what you're doing to help them.
0: Thank you. Well, that's exactly my motivation for putting this content out there. And, you know, I have to say, I've heard versions of what you've said many times, you know, from the experts that I've had on, but even then, just still hearing it, especially from someone like you, just gives me so much comfort that the reason that I am finding this hard and others find this hard is not because we're doing it wrong. It's not because yeah. there's something wrong with us. Yeah. It's because it is hard. And I wonder, with a helicopter view, you know, you wrote that book back in 2002.
1: Two, Mother Nurture.
0: We're now in 2021, and I'm wondering... Have you seen the change that you would have desired? And why do you think that is? I know that's a really big question, but I think it's important to unpack the kind of political and societal context before we get into maybe the more individual experience.
1: Well, first to acknowledge the obvious, I'm a dude, (laughs) I'm a guy. And in a funny way, I think that it's maybe not an accident that it was a man, a father, a father, who has written still to date, really, the only comprehensive guide to, as the subtitle puts it, health in body, mind and intimate relationships for the 20 years or so after your first child comes along. There's plenty of stuff for the first three to six months. And there are various sort of memoirs of motherhood, which basically boil down to what (laughs) this is really a lot crazier than I ever imagined. Okay, great. But there's not much that's comprehensive in terms of a package of helpfulness. So I suspect actually it's partly because a combination of things. One, mothers themselves biologically just surge into commitment for their children, understandably, for the sake of our whole species. And they tend to leave their own needs far, far behind. Second, we have a long standing history of exploiting women, period. In a variety of ways, the context of controlling their reproduction, the context of dominating them, the context of sidelining them. It's really quite stunning sometimes to just look at the changes that have been long overdue and have started to occur in our time, but are still not complete to what they ought to be. I, for example, enjoy with my wife watching Australian crime shows, sometimes set in the 1950s, let's say. And you can see when you watch these shows just how casually the subordination kind of pushing to the side of women was. So I think there's a societal tendency to just exploit mothers. And one thing that enables that exploitation is to turn a blind eye to the impact on them bearing and rearing all of our children. So I wish I could say that there have been major changes. I think there have been significant changes in the law in terms of men and women's rights in Western democracies in the last generation or two. In America, certainly, there have not been changes in terms of workplace policies like paid leave. We're terrible in that regard as a country. And more broadly, as many researchers have noted, while there are growing opportunities and many issues, but still growing possibilities of equality, at least in the letter of the law, in workplace environments, and women have gradually started to take advantage of those opportunities, there has not been an equivalent surge of fathers into the work of the home. So here we have mothers who are taking advantage of long overdue opportunities in the workplace without any real reduction in their load at home. And gender stereotypes, gender role typing, just expectations and so forth in the home environment, in the intimate environment of raising a family with somebody else that really has not changed very much probably since my own parents time actually there's certain exceptions to it there's certain couples in which there's a dedication to genuine sharing of the workload the stress load and the executive responsibility even if their roles are different you know in my environment with my wife a common structure roughly is that think of a heterosexual couple let's say married or not and let's say there's a you know conventional division of labor in which, at least for the first few years, he does the bulk of the earning a living. She does the bulk of child rearing and homemaking. But still, essentially what is happening there properly is a full sharing of the load. But that isn't the norm, is it? Much research shows, for example, that a typical mother is working, is on task about 20 hours a week more than her partner is. Whether or not she's drawing a paycheck It's so easy to get there, isn't it? You know, that extra 40 minutes in the morning while he's reading the paper, You know that extra hour and a half in the evening while he's watching TV or catching up on emails, that extra couple hours a day, Saturday and Sunday, on the weekends, doing this and that while he's doing whatever he does, it really adds up and becomes that average of 20 hours a week. And that's just one example. So I better shut up now and hear what you have to say.
0: I'm nodding along because I think... Exactly as you described so eloquently, is why right now, and I want to put this in the context of the pandemic shortly as well, it feels so challenging to be a mother. You know, there was a UN study that came out a couple of years ago. You know, the women are still doing 79% of the invisible emotional labor in the home know, which is what you were talking to. It's relatively new. You know, it's only in the last 100 years that we've gone from being property as women, you know, where we were sold into marriages to actually owning our own property. And it's such a short time period, really. And I think that's why for my generation of mothers, it feels impossible some Mm. days, some weeks, some months.
1: That's very poignant, isn't it?
0: With my work, I sort of try and, you know, have conversations like this to bring it to light. And then, you know, on another side of what I do, try and support with the tools and coaching. And, but it's systemic and it is yeah. huge. And I had Dr. Gabor Marte on, and he said it's the hardest time to be a mother outside wartime right now, for those reasons mm-hmm. that you were describing.
1: I think that's true. And I true. don't
0: really know, do you?
1: Yeah, and I think that just to really to build on what you've been saying... It would be great if there were more changes at the political and social policy level and changes in different corporations and workplaces. That would be great. It would be really great. It ought to happen. Okay, great. What are we going to do meanwhile? And that's my focus as a longtime clinical psychologist, also someone with, a, at this point, a pretty deep understanding of the physiological effects of chronic stress and little chance for replenishment. What can we do at the individual level to promote really deep resilience? In the body, the mind, and also to promote that combination of teamwork and intimate friendship, which is what's really needed with a partner. If a woman is raising her kids with a partner, whether or not that was the father of them, that aspect of intimate friendship and teamwork, sharing the load fairly and parenting from the same page in terms of teamwork is really, really important. How to foster those. I'm a really practical guy, and that's what's been very interesting to me how to actually develop and to, in effect, if a mother is drained and depleted, how to actually start filling her up again for her own sake and also for the sake of her kids and her family.
0: And so where does someone start? You know, if they're listening to this, we're kind of two years into a pandemic. Every mother I speak to is feeling those two words you said, depleted and drained. Where does someone start? What are some of the things that you've learned and can help with?
1: I think the first place to start is right where you started, which is to make it normal and understandable and not your fault right there. There are lawful processes. You know, if you pour out, pour out, pour out, pour out and you don't fill up. Well, guess what? After a while, you're running on empty. That's a normal process. If you stress the body and mind day in and day out, research has shown that raising young children alone, interacting for hours in a row with a two-year-old, let's say, is about as stressful as being in a combat zone. And it's more stressful than most typical jobs. So if you are subjected to those kind of chronic stresses over time, understandably, that's going to dysregulate your hormones. It's going to wear down your immune system. It's going to disturb your GI tract. It's going to make your head (laughs) feel like it's got a bowling alley recently installed inside it. You know, it's going to wear down the neurochemicals like serotonin, et cetera, that you need to maintain a reasonably stable and positive mood. It's understandable. And with that understanding can come self-compassion. This is not wallowing in self-pity. It's giving yourself the same recognition and respect and support, even tender-hearted support, that you would give to anyone else who is walking in your shoes. So that's, to me, very, very much a good place to start. And then second, I think pluck the low-hanging fruit. In other words, what are the easy, quick things that you can do that will make a change that you'll start to feel, wherever that might be. So systematically, I think in terms of the demands upon a person, so their schedule, let's say, I also think in terms of their body, their physical health, nutrition, exercise, sleep, etc. I also think in terms of their mind their capacity to disengage from stress or to kind of come back to a place of calm and inner peace is as distant as that may sound still. Is there opportunity there? And also is there opportunity in their relationships? So wherever the low-hanging fruit might be, I think that's where to start. So I'll just go through some examples of a couple of things in each one of those areas. Maybe with regard to the external world you're dealing with, your own personal schedule, there's a little change you could make there. Maybe if it's under your control to make, that would make a difference for you. Like making it clear with your boss that you need to leave earlier from work, half an hour earlier on a regular basis, or change your work schedule, something like that. Or just frankly, get somebody out of your life, Just disengage from someone who's mostly pain and little gain that you're dealing with. Is there an external change you could make that would make a difference for you? What's on your list? Second, your body. Have protein with every meal. Most women enter motherhood already physically depleted of many nutrients that just mainstream medicine, forget holistic health stuff, right? Just the low bar of mainstream medicine says most women enter their first pregnancy, they carry a term, nutritionally depleted inside already. So, you know, do whatever you find sensible to you, but in general, for example, try to eat something decent and good for you at every meal. A lot of moms will make a good breakfast for their kids and then have a Diet Coke for themselves, basically, as they're racing out the door, maybe grabbing some kind of... Waffle on the way. That's not really good for you. So maybe there's an opportunity to do something simple in what you eat. Maybe there's a chance to just get a little more exercise for yourself or movement, whatever that could be built into your day. Perhaps that's pushing the child in a stroller, or maybe you're connecting with another mom to be able to do that. What's easy that you could do for your physical health? Then we have the mind. There are different things, depending on different people, that they find accessible. One thing I think that is really useful is as soon as you start to notice that your stressometer is moving into dark red, as best you possibly can, disengage and get that stressometer back at least into orange, if not yellow or green. We're sturdy creatures. We can handle a lot of stress, but chronic deep red zone stress is really, really not good for us. It's kind of like you're wearing through your brake pads at that point and you're metal on metal. So that's the thing to do, to just say to yourself, you know, I need to watch out over my day. And when I'm starting to get so frustrated and so mad and so stressed and so rattled, back off, back up from that for a breath. If there's a crisis, you know, if the building is burning and that's why you're so super stressed because you're getting the kid out the door, okay, do that. But otherwise, can you back up for a breath? Can you slow it down? Can you treat yourself like you matter enough to quit pressing metal on metal, in effect, or brake pads, but instead step back? That's potentially something you can do in your mind. Can you, as you go through your day, do what I call taking in the good? This is where you slow down When you're experiencing something beneficial, typically mild, but normal in the flow of life, your kid is finally sleeping or your partner has actually complimented you for something or you got something done or there's just this sweet moment or you just look around and you go, man, it's crazy, but I love being a mom. Just a moment, slow it down to, in the saying from science, keep those neurons firing together So they start wiring together and you gradually internalize these moments into lasting changes in your own brain so that over time you start to actually compensate for the negative experiences you're having by internalizing positive experiences, not to deny anything that's problematic, not to look at the world through rose-colored glasses, but in effect to give yourself the psychological food that anyone needs for the marathon of motherhood. So slowing down to taking the good, a breath here, half a minute there, maybe a minute or two in a row sometimes, just that can really, really shift your consciousness. So that would be an example of some things that are low-hanging fruit, potentially, that you might be able to do in your mind. And then in the relationship, many, many women, a large fraction of them, are raising children essentially alone. That's not how... It's meant to be, but that's the way it is sometimes, certainly exacerbated by recent forces, including the pandemic. But let's say for the moment that you actually have an engaged partner who's maybe not perfect, but there they are. Could be a same-gender partner, could be a heterosexual couple. In either case, there might be something you could do there that would reduce whatever's stressful and bad and potentially grow more of what could be good. This often requires actually communicating, which can be scary. And if you're already worn to a frazzle, you know, yet one more thing to do. And I get it. I get given the typical inequities related to mothers and fathers or mothers and their other partners, I get that it could feel burdensome to think, God, I got to now manage him too, right? On the other hand, if we don't speak up, about the way it is, including speaking up with gravity and skillfulness, not with hostility, but with clarity and determination and self-respect. If we don't speak up in that way, things don't typically change. One thing to do potentially is to say to a partner, look, if you just kind of look at a typical week, Maybe because actually for a typical week, you take little notes and you're starting to watch how much time is actually spent by each person doing various things. And you start to discover sometimes when you keep a record like that, not as a big gotcha, not because you're going to become a big prosecutor, but you just want to know what the facts are. Quick sidebar, studies show that typically in a heterosexual couple raising kids, the man is doing less than he thinks he's doing, but he's doing more than his partner thinks he's doing. <laughs> That's a typical. I don't know if it, if it like typical doesn't always apply in every case, but it's not uncommon. So it's helpful sometimes to really pin down how much time actually people are spending in terms of making the family time on task. So one thing that can sometimes happen is we just say to our partner, look, it's just not fair. It's just not fair. It's just not fair. It's not good for our kids. It's not good for me. It's not good for our relationship. And so I think going forward, we should make a couple of changes. Now, maybe those changes are very specific. You know, That you do the dishes while I give the kids the bath, or while you're reading them stories at night, let's say for bedtime, I'm not going to be doing the dishes. I'm going to be reading my own story in a bathtub. (laughs) Can we make an arrangement like that, right? And my personal experience is a lot of men, I'll speak about men who are fathers, they know they're doing a better job than their own dads did. So they feel like they deserve special credit. Like, hey, I'm more engaged than my father was. You know, he was a traditional 50s guy. I'm doing better than that, right? Come on, give me a break. Well, okay, great. Thanks a lot. Got it. And, you know, it's still not fair. It's still not fair. I think there's respect deep down in many men for the principle of fair play and justice. They get it. It's in male culture, certainly female culture, but it's conspicuous in male culture that you do your job, you pull your weight, you carry your end of the log. And most men on average are not pulling their weight in their homes, period. So there's plenty of room for improvement there. And maybe that's an opportunity as well. And then just last in the broad space of intimate friendship, of which Sexuality is a very small part. The friendship altogether that brought a couple together to have children, right? Maybe there's some possibilities there that could be helpful, such as such an agreement, let's say, that we as a couple, we're just going to hang out for 10 to 20 minutes every day for sure, just us. Maybe it's while we just kind of talk and cuddle while we're falling asleep. Maybe it's a time after dinner when the kids have been fed and then they're kind of, you know, they're off doing something, maybe with the electronic televised babysitter of some form, (laughs) but we're just going to hang out with a glass of wine or a cup of tea and we're just going to be together and we're going to be interested in each other you know, no more structure than that. Nothing weird or touchy feely, just that. We're going to agree to that. Just that. Often that 10 minutes or 20 minutes a day can really make a big difference. So I'll finish here. I've just been giving a variety of examples of what some of the low hanging fruit can be. And then building on that, for sure. I mean, as I outline in my book, and people can see things online for free. You don't even have to buy a book at nurturemom.com. You can just see a variety of more in-depth, more far-reaching interventions you can take over time, depending on particular issues. But I think it's really good to start with these two things. Number one, compassion and respect for yourself and treating yourself like you matter. Your needs have standing. They're legitimate period. And then second, looking for the low hanging fruit. And then after that, keep on going.
0: It's incredibly helpful. And I think just to touch on that point that you started with, actually, and then you said at the end would be one of the two you pulled out, which is this idea of self-compassion. And I think it's in my own work you know, having done the podcast a while, I, I'm just coming to see almost daily how that just needs to be front and center for mm-hmm. mothers. What I also notice is this real tension and paradox that at the time when I think we most need that self-compassion muscle, my critic, I'll speak for myself, my inner critic and my feelings of guilt and not enoughness, because I love these tiny beings so much, I just want to do so well for them, also is the loudest it's ever been for me in my life. And I'm wondering if you could talk to that tension, because I don't think that's an uncommon experience.
1: We have all these societal expectations of mothers, and then we have whatever personal messages we've gotten based on our upbringing, the church we went to as a kid, whatever else. And then, of course, there are personal tendencies. Often, the people who are most committed to being a good mom have a very active sense of conscientiousness and responsibility. I'm seeing you smile here, Zoe. Takes one to know one. I see you. (laughs) And that's a beautiful thing. It's a really good thing to be that kind of person. But on the other hand, it can go too far. So what to do about it? There's a classic kind of model in psychology that essentially describes the personality as having like these three major elements. And An early version of this was the inner child, the nurturing parent, internalized nurturing parent, and the internalized critical parent. That's a kind of structure. An updated version of that, somewhat related to trauma work, including developed by really wonderful people like Dr. Gabor Mate, as you spoke of a moment ago, sometimes it's called the inner victim, the inner perpetrator or persecutor, and then the inner protector. And more broadly, I think of it as, you know, the beleaguered self, the inner attacker and the inner nurturer. So we have that kind of structure inside. Now, one option is to really push back against the inner attacker, the inner critic, who has multiple forms. The inner critic, it's an inner skeptic, it has these different aspects to it. One option is to argue back against it and to say, you're wrong, you're dumb. You could imagine the inner critic, the inner attacker, as having a certain funny look, like a cartoon villain from a Disney movie, you know, like Simon Legree with a big black hat and a stupid mustache and, you know, just sort of ridiculous. You know, you could do these various things. So there's a place for that. These are good methods. Push back against the inner critic. It's actually more effective. Additionally, I think over the long term to build up the inner nurturer. So that internally, you have more of a sense of what I call a caring committee inside you. Then as you build up its power, the inner critic gets increasingly sidelined. Fighting with the inner critic is a long struggle because in some ways it wants you to start arguing with it because then it's got your attention it's much better to basically go, I got it, inner critic. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate your efforts here. I understood you a long time ago. You're not saying anything new. Thank you for sharing. And then whoop! focus on building up your inner nurturers by, for example, really focusing on the feeling you have when you're with people who genuinely care about you. It might be a fairly mild form of caring, like just casual friendliness at work, or a person just giving you basic decency or kindness who's a stranger on a train you happen to be sitting next to. Or it could be the deeper caring from friends, family, partners, children. When it's factually present, slow it down, take in the good, to feel it. Most people really, certainly many mothers, don't slow down to take into themselves the feelings that they long for. We long to be cared about. We long to be respected and liked and loved. And yet when it's factually present, how often do we actually slow down to kind of marinate in it and to receive it deeply into ourselves, including deeply into places inside that have lacked that kind of caring or have been wounded in relationships of various kinds? That's a beautiful opportunity available to us many times a day, even in a pretty isolated, hectic life, to tap into the sense based on things happening in the present, or if appropriate, bring up memories of things that have happened in the past. So you get a particular song playing on your inner iPod, of feeling cared about in a variety of ways, authentically. And then once that song is playing on the inner iPod, turn on the inner recorder. So it becomes a part of yourself. That's a major pathway to building up this caring committee, which then is a major resource to draw upon as you stand up against your inner critic,
0: your inner attacker. And I have experienced that. It's incredible. The other day something happened and I noticed that my inner nurturing voice was the loudest and it was a real moment of celebration for me. I was like, wow, it was there, I could hear it, it was kind. But that's taken some work, some years. As you say, I have found focusing on that more effective than trying to silence the critic, which, yeah, I tried for a while too, but actually I found really taking in those moments and making that voice louder and louder, as you say, in in the tape recorder. And I wanted to ask you specifically about the emotion of guilt. Would you say guilt is an emotion? Am I using the right language there?
1: Yeah, it has a pretty significant cognitive component of a sense of falling short of some standard, of course, but sure, I'll call
0: it an emotion. So I wanted to ask you about the emotion of guilt because there is this narrative, which is that when the child is born, the guilt is born and that whenever I speak to my community about this, I have never met a mother who hasn't felt guilty on some level? And you know, there's a Harvard study that shows that the guilt is the same actually between working mothers and non-working mothers. So it's not about whether we're working yeah. and feel guilty about that. It's just this sense of you know. When I speak to my community, they say you know I feel guilty for not being there enough. I feel guilty that I'm there but I'm cooking. I feel guilty I'm not giving them enough experiences. I feel guilty that I'm a single mom. You know, the list is just endless you know, I know you have written about this and spoken on it before. What do we do about this guilt? Where does it come from? Is it generational? Is it societal? Is it innate? How do we free ourselves of it? Thanks to this week's sponsor, AG1, the daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports whole body health. I love my AG1. It really supports me in feeling more energized, especially when I haven't had enough sleep. AG1 replaces your multivitamin, probiotic, and more in a simple drinkable habit. It's a science driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food source nutrients. So, for all us mums out there, we know how busy we are. So if you're looking for self-care that's quick and easy, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to drinkag1.com slash motherkind. That's drinkag1.com slash motherkind to check it out.
1: It's a super deep question. So why are we guilty, let's say? Now, let's be really clear. So what is guilt about? Basically, there's some standard. And then there's the perception that we're falling short of that standard. And then based on that shortfall, that gap, there are feelings or attitudes like remorse or guilt or shame or regret. But it boils down to the gap, the shortfall between a standard and performance, between ideal and actual. So then the question becomes, what are truly fair standards and What is your actual performance in reference to those standards? I'm putting it really logically. But then most important, beyond the logic of this, is there a muscular stand inside the mind of the mother that she gets to decide what the appropriate standards are and that she gets to evaluate her performance in reference to those standards and she gets to decide how bad she should feel if she falls short period very often we feel guilty because we've internalized standards and views of our performance that are from the outside they're from the culture they're from our partner they're from our parents or from our boss or from our mother-in-law and it's bs It's not your own standard. So there's a place that there's no replacement for, for taking responsibility inside yourself, for deciding what is a good enough mother? What is good enough, realistically, especially in the context of the marathon. For example, a good enough pace to win a hundred meter race at the Olympics is not at all appropriate for the good enough pace hundred yards at a time or a mile at a time or, you know, whatever, a kilometer at a time to run a marathon. You can't sustain the marathon of motherhood at the pace of a sprint. And also when you evaluate yourself, it has to be in light of all the balls you're juggling. Somebody said something to me. This is a dear friend. He just recently passed away. So he's very much in my heart and it's a heavy heart uh, here. But probably 30 years ago, actually, we were going for a walk. And what he said to me, I think, is extremely relevant to you and to any parent, really, especially to mothers. So I was talking about my different roles as a young psychologist, as a father, as a husband, as someone who is building a business and as someone with a deep interest in spiritual practice. And I complained about feeling like I was falling short in every single one of those five standards, every single one of those five roles. Sound familiar? Okay, good. (laughs) And he said to me, well, Rick, you may be falling short In each one of those areas, if you compare yourself to a person who does only that thing, if you compare yourself to a person who's only a father or only a husband or only a developing psychotherapist or only building a business or only doing spiritual practice, yes, each one of those specialists are probably doing a little better than you are. But in terms of the whole package, Rick, the whole package, you're doing better at the package than anyone I know. Wow. He just touched my heart and I learned something really deep there. It's a little bit like if you're a mother, to use the Olympics analogy again, you're a decathlete. You've got 10 events. You're not going to be the best in the world at any single event, but you can be really, really good, really, really good enough at all 10 of them together. And that's how to judge yourself. So that when you go to bed at the end of the day, you can enjoy what the Buddha called a long time ago, the bliss of blamelessness. (laughs) That's a great phrase. You can just say to yourself, you know, I put in a good day's work. I clocked in. I did my job. It was hard. Okay. Maybe there are a couple of things that looking back, I want to learn from. And I'm going to try to implement that learning in the days to come. But on the whole, good enough. No regrets. No regrets. You know, no blame. That's how you want to go to sleep each day.
0: No, it's so beautiful. I've never heard anyone describe it that way.
1: I can see you're really touched by it.
0: I just feel like it's so true. <laughs> and you know, when you hear a truth and, and it's like that sort of instant relief, that's what it feels like. Yeah. yeah. And when you said doing 10 things, in my head, I thought, yeah, an hour. It's like 10 things an hour I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not ten things you know, all mothers were doing sort of ten different roles within the hour often. Yeah. And the pressure that we put on upon ourselves, I think that's where my emotion came from. It's just that collective exhale for all of us, just the pressure that I see myself and others, you know, and then the guilt, and then feeling guilty about the guilt and then the you know, the cycle.
1: Yeah. What did you think, Zoe, about the point I made that I stressed about in effect. The importance of claiming the right to have your own view about this, claiming the right to define your job description, <laughs> you know, your human job description, to claim it for yourself. I get to decide that. Sure, I'll listen to you all out there. Yeah, I'll hear what you have to say. But deep down inside, I'm the one who has the final decision on what my standards are. And I have the final say over the evaluation of my performance. That's really something to claim. And that's against the stream of the typical training for girls and women and for mothers.
0: And I wonder if that is just such a big, well, it's definitely a big part of the puzzle as I have come to see. And my experience of motherhood so far, six years in, is that it has been the biggest opportunity for my own awakening and empowerment. I have made decisions I decided to have a home birth with my first, which is quite unusual. And certain members of my family couldn't even talk to me about it. They were so upset. And I was like, this is what I'm doing. And I thought to myself, wow, this is a new part of me that's emerging. I'd never been that assertive and empowered. And I'm lucky that that part of me has grown. Like through the pandemic, I opted out of all homeschooling. Totally against the grain. But like you say, I made that decision. And interestingly, I don't feel any guilt about that. I think because I felt so empowered about the decision. But as you say, that has taken, to be transparent with you, a lot of therapy, a lot Mm -hmm. of healing. It wasn't the generational pattern that I was gifted. I was gifted the opposite of that in terms of how women are to be. So that's taken a lot of work for me to feel that inner confidence. I mean, that's, that would be one of my greatest wishes for all mothers is that sense of empowerment. How different would the world be?
1: Oh, it would be great. <laughs> totally.
0: I wanted to touch on the pandemic because I feel like you're maybe one of the only people in the world who can intersect these two experiences because you've done so much thinking and writing about the pandemic and the impact of it and on motherhood. And I wondered if you could share Perhaps the big sort of things that you would want everyone listening to hear or know about the impact of what we've been through as mothers the last two years.
1: I think it's really helpful to start by just recognizing what's in front of our nose, but we are so used to it, we don't see it anymore, which is that the way that most people these days, certainly in the more developed countries of the world, are raising their families is completely unnatural, abnormal, and bizarre in reference to (laughs) the ways that we actually evolved to rear our children. Just to put it in a little bit of context, you and I are homo sapiens human beings and anatomically modern human beings with bodies that look just like our own have lived and walked this earth for 300,000 years. That's a long time. And then another 2 million or so years before that, their ancestors, who were bright enough to make and use tools of various kinds, lived for another 2 million years. And throughout almost all that time, people like you and I spent their entire lives amidst a group of roughly 50 people, a band, with a little bit of connection with some other bands, but also often a lot of violent competition with other bands for scarce resources. That's how we lived. We lived in small bands. And so when they say it takes a village to raise a child, they mean a really small village, but that's what it takes to raise a child. So that's the template. That's the blueprint. That's how we're supposed to do it. And when you start realizing, wow, that's how we're supposed to do it, it starts to explain in so many ways why the typical life as a mother, alone with a child, often behind a closed doors for multiple hours in a day, or having to struggle to get together with other mothers, these days exacerbated by the pandemic. You know, you start to appreciate how difficult and challenging it is. And then you start to realize that many of the issues that you felt were just inside your own home or inside your own mind or body actually originated outside your front door. We can't change them immediately. I don't want to go back to the Stone Age anyway, All right. But it sure is helpful to realize how different it is from the ways things were really meant to be in terms of biological evolution. We then take a look at things like the pandemic, which is even more isolating. And now the village it takes to raise a child is truly a ghost town. And of course, that's going to have an enormous effect on the day-to-day stresses of mothers what to do about it i think first step is to actually understand it and to make it more impersonal it's not your fault it's not your fault no blame it's a problem <laughs> for you to deal with but it's not your fault just getting that can be really really helpful and then you start to realize okay let me slow it down what are the essential supplies that a person got in a hunter gatherer band 20000 years ago Or in your country, what did they have 10,000 years ago or 1,000 years ago before the European invaders came? If you imagine that, you think, well, I need to experience, just experience, I need to feel several times a day that I have a sense of camaraderie with another parent, ideally another mother. I need to feel that. And I'm gonna look for ways to feel that more often. I need to feel respected in my role as a mother, whether it's for my partner or others, and I'm gonna look for ways to feel that. In other words, identify. If you have scurvy, you need vitamin C. If you're living on a very thin soup of community and social support as a mother, then look for the particular elements you can find some way to get some of. It doesn't let society off the hook, doesn't let your partner off the hook, but what are the little things you can do? that are like psychological vitamin C's for you, special nutrients for you. I've said two so far, sense of camaraderie with other mothers and a feeling of being respected. Also, respite. You know, when we were hunting and gathering, there was a lot of opportunity for respite because other people could take care of your child for a little bit. So where are the opportunities for respite? How many minutes of respite? How many hours. Forget about it. How many minutes of respite can a person get every day? And then what can you do to try to build those into your life more? So I'll just finish there maybe with particularly emphasizing, yeah, it would be really good if society were different, It's not going to be different. I think it's going to be a while for countries to come out of the COVID situation in a way that feels safe for people. But I do believe we will turn the corner. But it's many months, if not a year or two away from any kind of normalization, really. And so meanwhile, what can you do? Well, you can do the things I've said. Look for ways to experience camaraderie, maybe online, maybe in more distant settings, maybe outdoors where it's safe. Look for ways to really focus on being respected. Respect is really important. And then look for ways to get more respite. Those are examples of some of the things we can do to deal with some of the impact of the pandemic. Landing on a village to raise a child that was already pretty much like a ghost town.
0: There's a study that came out the other day that said 80% of parents in the UK are experiencing parental burnout. And that was so unsurprising to me. And, you know, the more mothers that I speak to about the experience of homeschooling and simultaneously having to Mm -hmm. carry on with all the work and unpaid work, I'm wondering how many mothers would have some lasting scars and grief about that. How do we begin to process some of what we went through I mean it was remarkable really in the UK the schools particularly this year shut with a day's notice I mean it's just staggering I almost still don't have the words how does someone begin to unpack what has happened well I don't
1: know all the ways that a person might do it I can tell you that for me and somewhat related to kind of my own I guess, contemplative orientation is that it's really helpful to not take it personally. It's really helpful, in other words, to recognize these vast social forces that are in play and at work. They could be really bad, but they're impersonal. They're vast. They're to be dealt with. And this kind of understanding, which doesn't need to be intellectual at all, it just is a way of looking at it, can immediately bring a certain peacefulness. It's not my fault. Doing what I can with it is my responsibility. But this unwanted condition that's been thrust upon me is not my fault. And I'm just going to do the best I can with it every day and not add collateral damage to an already bad situation by beating myself up over things I can't control. To speak to this, I'm a dad. There really are biological differences. And, you know, for example, our daughter had colic or she had ear infections, actually, when she was a little girl. And, you know, she would be upset at night and I would know I would work through my dad checklist of all the possible things we could do for her. And I would get to the bottom of the list, know that we had done everything we could and I'd fall asleep. No, not my wife. She'd be awake all night out of empathy and compassion for our daughter. So I got to recognize that difference. That said, I have a hunch that in mothers is probably naturally some sort of feeling that they should be able to control certain things that they just can't control. Whether it's societal or biological, this feeling that I should be able to make this better. I should. Or this notion that somehow you have the power to make it better when you don't. There's a term in psychology, negative grandiosity. It's this idea that you have power that you really don't. And therefore, you should have guilt that you don't deserve. Appropriate responsibility always has to be in proportion to our power. Our influence, our capacity to make something happen. If our influence is extremely limited or zero, then guess what? We have limited, if not zero, responsibility. You want to make someone crazy? Make them responsible for things that they don't have the power to manifest. Gee, that sounds like (laughs) the standard view of motherhood, right? That'll make people crazy in laboratory experiments. You want to really mess someone up? Make them feel responsible for things they can't control. That's crazy making. So to me, it's actually really helpful to bring that kind of perspective to bear. And then maybe the last thing, the lesson of 50 years of research on stress and human psychology just shows that in conditions that are very challenging, it's more important than ever to install internal shock absorbers. The more stressful the world is, the more it's banging on you, the less support it's giving you, the more it's asking of you every day, the more that's happening, the more those challenges are rising. The more important it is to grow your resources as well inside yourself, like shock absorbers, like being able to stay fairly calm even while you're getting things done, inner resource like the caring committee in a resource like appropriate standards for what a good enough job performance as a mother and and wife and human being is each day. It's more important than ever to grow those kinds of things. It's more important than ever, I think, to grow a certain fundamental attitude, uh, essentially as not my problem. Here too, I think many women are socialized, girls and women generally are socialized to do the relationship work for others and to take on the problems of others. And then if you're a mother, all that comes with that, including some of the hormonal impacts, there's particularly that feeling. And I I think a lot of moms would benefit by having it, not literally, figuratively, metaphorically tattooed on the inside of their eyelids, NMP, not my problem. And it's really tricky to take the stand that this is not my problem about things that are really tearing at your heart, that you, understandably you have compassion for. But you realize, you know, I feel you're suffering. I do have compassion for you. I do wish there was more justice. But you know what? There's nothing I can do about it. And so I'm going to give myself absolution, in effect. I'm going to say to myself, it's okay. This one is not mine. Hopefully someone else will do it. I got a huge pile over here. And a lot of it is noble and virtuous. I'm fulfilling many, many duties over here and doing it with honor and virtue and a certain nobility of spirit every day. That's my work over here. I wish you well over there. I can't do the work to make things different in your own life. It's not my problem over there. It would be really good to be able to give yourself that sanction, to grant yourself those boundaries, that absolution.
0: And it totally links to what we were talking about earlier, doesn't it? You know, for me, that sort of empowerment and setting our own limits. The other side of that is our ability then to set the boundaries around what's not within those limits.
1: That's right. What's inside and what's outside. Do a good job for what's inside, including maybe certain things with your partner that would make a big difference there just in their own right and our enlightened self-interest. Because if you take those little steps with your partner, maybe adding up to less than 10 minutes a day, that's going to rebound and incline your partner to be better with you, potentially. So whatever you decide for yourself is in your list every day. Do that. And then when you've done it, (laughs) know that you've done it and enjoy the bliss of blamelessness.
0: That is such a beautiful phrase. I have heard it before, but the way that you say it is just touching me in a really different way this evening the bliss of blamelessness is beautiful
1: we need to know when it's enough we need to know when it's good enough you talked about pressure you know as someone with a i have a lot of interest in the underlying neurobiology of craving as a source of suffering craving leads to suffering broadly defined and the hallmark of craving is pressure the sense of pressure drivenness even if it's for a good cause that sense of contraction and pressure, often with a lot of me, myself, and I in the mix, even if it's well-intended, that quality of contraction, pressure, and selfing is a fundamental engine of stress and suffering and will wear us down, body and mind over time, often with negative effects on others. And what's really helpful to appreciate is that we can still clock 14 hours a day (laughs) altogether, taking care of everybody, right? Including maybe a job we get a paycheck for or not. We can still clock long hours. We can still do our work. We can still be determined. But with less and less of that internal sense of pressure and contraction, in effect, we can start to feel that our motivational engine is starting to switch from pushing to pulling. And what I mean by that is that there's this movement from pushing ourselves to keep going up that hill every single day, push those boulders up the hill, even when they want to roll back down again. (laughs) Mama, let me go. You know, we got to push them up the hill. That's push motivation. But what about feeling pulled by what inspires us, by what's living through us, being lived by love, being lived by a sense of honor in doing what is our job each day. And knowing that we don't have to do more than that, that that's plenty good enough. You know, that's being pulled. It's kind of like the currents of your own best purposes are carrying you along. And it feels completely different. It's a way to be purposeful and deliberate and get a lot of tasks done and help the world become better with less and less and less of that contraction and pressure. That's the hallmark of the craving that leads to suffering and harm.
0: I just want to unpack that for hours with you. I really do. But unfortunately, <laughs> I only with you. I'm thinking, hang on a minute. Why didn't we ask for three hours? That would have been the wise thing to do. <laughs> maybe maybe another time.
1: Your... Yeah, just play with. You could feel like there you are doing whatever, doing the dishes, getting a kid into a car seat, reading Goodnight Moon for the 90th time, playing Candyland, the world's most boring game you know, whatever it is that you're doing, right? See what it's like to do it with a sense of inner pressure and pushing, contraction, which might feel fairly typical, kind of an internal sense of drivenness, tension, and then see what it's like to do the same thing, to read the same story, to do the same dishes, to be driving in carpool or whatever, with an internal sense that doesn't have pressure in it, doesn't have a quality of insistence in it, has more of a sense of ease and a felt sense of enoughness already so that there's less of a feeling of something missing, something wrong that has to be remedied in pressured, contracted action. But instead of that, getting a sense of we're basically okay, it's not perfect, we're really okay, we're basically okay, there's basically enough, there's already a lot already. We're all right. And I can keep getting my job done without feeling all stressed out about it. Just try that. That will make it real, what I'm talking about here.
0: There's so many thoughts that I have about that. You know, that word serenity is very important to me. I feel like, in a way, that's what you're describing is that ease that it's possible to sit with ourselves in that serenity. And in that wholeheartedness and in that ease without all the, you say, the more, more, more. It's a beautiful place. I have had glimpses of it. I wish I could be there more.
1: Uh, well, good. You're on a path, clearly, Zoe. You know, and qualities of a sense of spaciousness or inner freedom infused with love. People can bring awareness to these qualities as they feel them. What are those words, you know, elicit in you, evoke in you? You can feel that. Rested in that sense of, like I said, spaciousness and purposefulness. There's purposefulness there. That's what's pulling you forward. Your purposes are pulling you, while internally, there's a sense of choice and inner freedom about it all. That's available to us. And I think a releasing of anxiety. We didn't talk about anxiety, but innate in guilt is anxiety, you know, this fear of doing wrong in the future or having done wrong in the present or in the past. And it's really helpful to recognize what I call, notice you're all right right now when you are. You usually are. Most people usually are basically all right right now. It's not perfect, but it's basically okay right now. Deliberately let needless anxiety fall away. You can still be vigilant. You can still make sure your kid doesn't run in front of a bus. You can still be conscientious getting things done appropriately, you can still pursue excellence in different kinds of ways. But without having uneasiness or anxiety, anticipatory dread in the mix, it's just not necessary. If there's something to be truly scared about, yeah, be scared about it. But on the whole, we don't really need to bring anxiety along. It's an annoying passenger. (laughs) In the car of life, don't bring it along if you don't need to really have it there. So paying attention to needless anxiety and repeatedly again and again and again, because often anxiety becomes a habit again and again and again, trying to release that anxiety about something missing, something wrong, when in fact it's already basically okay and there's already enough and you're doing a good job. Just keep going.
0: One of my favorite things that I do probably hundreds of times a day is put my hand on my heart and I just say all is well
1: oh, that's very good
0: I mean I've said that a lot of times today I had a tricky day with my five-year-old and I just kept saying all is well all is well like you're describing it really helps anchor me back in the present reminds me of it's all okay at the end of the day it's all okay I can trust it's okay I can trust it's okay
1: well it must be working you're looking great at pushing midnight for you in the it's UK
0: it's 10 past
1: 10. Okay, good. Not too much later, but still pretty late.
0: You know, these conversations energize me Yeah. so much that I would do it all night if I could, to be honest yeah. with you. I love it. I absolutely love it, particularly, you know, with someone like you. I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why?
1: Really, the first thing that came up was very related to what you brought up, Zoe. Freedom from guilt. If we could just wash that out of their being. Just freedom from unfair guilt, needless guilt. Sure, there's a place for healthy remorse. There are times, you know, with my own kids where I've done things that, you know, soon after I thought to myself, correctly, darn Rick, what the heck? Don't ever do that again. You know, it wasn't abuse, but far from skillful. And okay, there's a no place for that. But that's not unfair guilt. So yeah, I would free them from their guilt if I possibly could. And what's left, what emerges, what arises, right, when guilt leaves is just a bone-deep feeling of worth as a human and a woman and a mother. That's what I would wish.
0: That's beautiful thank you thank you so much for your time and thank you for what you've shared i have taken so much away from it and i know that the listeners will some of the images that you've conjured up in my mind will be with me and i know will be with the listeners as we travel through this incredibly challenging time of mothering together
1: thank you also for everything you're doing
0: That was the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. Please do consider sharing it. That is how the Motherkind podcast has grown. You, my lovely listeners, sharing the episodes that you love. So please do share it. And if you have time, please do consider leaving us a review wherever you are listening to this podcast. It makes such a big difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this incredible content. So through August, we re-release our most popular episodes for the first six months of the year. So look out for those in your feed. Also, if you're listening to this on Apple, which over 70% of you do, then you can now subscribe to the podcast for just $3.99 a month. And you can support me and my very, very, very small team to keep putting out incredible content So thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your support. And I will see you next time.